Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist, currently living in San Francisco. On today's episode, we discuss something people can't live without. The internet. Oh, and food. Guest host Maddie Tucker, founder and writer of the blog Burger Fetish, talks about the impact of social media on the way we eat. We also dive into how our diets have changed because of technology and the impact the internet has on the service industry. So, because of the internet, I have Maddie Tucker here with me through Skype, which both of us had awesome old pictures as our Skype photos. So, Maddie, um, thanks for joining me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Maddie. I am a cook, and I have a food blog called Burger Fetish, where I eat burgers and talk about them. <laughs> you have like ate a rapid like amount of burgers in uh-huh. a really short amount of time. The blog has been up for how long? Take about two months. And there's like ten burgers on there, dude. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I launched with five, and then those I ate over the course of a few months, and sure. since then I've been doing about one a week. So where can people find you online? My website is burgerfetish.co because com was taken by someone who's just kind of sitting on it. I'm not going to pay for that. And (laughs) I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All of them are their respective websites slash burger fetish, one word. You know, and I'm actually even pretty impressed with the photography of the burgers. Not going to lie. Restaurants are poorly lit, and then I have to edit them (laughs) so that they look kind of weird. And But yeah, thanks. Yeah. So I think that we should just jump right in. There was a ramen festival that you brought to light that kind of went through a tough time and because of an internet celebrity. So I think that's where we should start. So at the uh, New York Food and Wine Fest, they had like a big ramen event that was hosted. Well, it was put together by uh, this guy named uh, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. And he um, he's a food writer. He's on Serious Eats. And he's got a column called uh, The Food Lab. And then he wrote a book called The Food Lab uh, Cookbook. But he put together this big uh, ramen event at the New York Food and Wine Fest. And at some point, the organizers, the other organizers, brought in um, internet celebrity uh, The Fat Jew to host the festival. And this guy, Kenji, didn't like, doesn't like The Fat Jew. For for those uh, uh, not following the internet for the past Uh year, The Fat Jew is like a social media celebrity that has recently been outed for appropriating almost every single one of his jokes, mm-hmm. any type of material. And he, the internet also discovered that he was a fat liar. <laughs> yeah. He was just like reposting a lot of images of stuff and then not giving credit where they came from. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, I follow him on Instagram and he posts like funny stuff that other people made without saying who made it. And he's got like, you know, millions of followers on Instagram. I don't know how many he has now, but you know. So the organizer, Kenji, he like, he's also, you know, an internet personality and just follows this and just found, when he found out that they brought in the fat Jew, he was like, no, I hate that guy. Um, Don't do this. So then he dropped out of the organization, and then a bunch of all of the ramen shops that were going to be part of this event all dropped out. It was like the elite like ramen shops in New York were all going to be at this event, and then they all, they all dropped out of the event. So first what I find crazy about this is every time somebody says the word ramen, I just think about like the 10-cent packs of yeah. like 
cup of noodles. They should call it something else. Like, it shouldn't be called ramen. It should be called, like, like, I don't know. You're in San Francisco, too. I know. That's, like, that's like everywhere. That's, well, like, that's where really good ramen is. Trust me. Wide. People are People are constantly telling me, and I see pictures of it, and I'm like, oh, what's that delectable-looking dish <laughs> that has, like, egg and stuff in it? That looks so good. And someone's like, it's ramen. I'm like, from the package? I'm like, what? <laughs> what I think is actually interesting about all of these like legitimate businesses like refusing to be associated with this social media celebrity that has like a tarnished reputation is that there's this interesting conflict that happens that's still happening within like the food world and it happens within the art world where there is like creditable um, what I would consider like upper echelon you know in this term chefs but I mentioned artists and other things like that who are starting to understand the impact that social media has on their industry or like that the internet has on their industry in general and that they've purposefully wanted to distance themselves and just the inclusion of somebody who has a tarnished like online reputation is enough to want to walk away from any kind of competition that it like completely rebranded it into something that they don't identify as like a legitimate yeah I think that's definitely true they uh I mean, all of the, like, ramen... I follow a lot of ramen shops uh, in New York, and they're all <laughs> all over, like, Instagram, like, posting these, like, pretty pictures that you mentioned. I mean, it's, it's true. Like, people like looking at food pictures, and, you know, you need to do that to market your restaurant. And, you know, it's important that you have that, like, social media presence and having that association with, a what do you call it? maybe an internet villain at this yeah. point um <laughs> i but, like the idea of coming up with a cast of internet villains yeah <laughs> people have perpetuated internet crimes yeah oh. i think it would be like him kim davis maybe uh-huh. <laughs> um <laughs> I, donald trump is like i think maybe an internet villain at this point I, he's he's more of an overarching villain <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting the the conflict of having the online representation of your food or having such an impactful influence on if somebody actually, like not the quality of the food, not like where the food came from, not how it's prepared, but like how it visually looks on Instagram to lure uh-huh. people into eating it. Like that's, I, I feel like that's something that the food industry hasn't, I mean, like, I guess in terms of, like, coming up with commercials for food, but that's, like, much more, like, mass industry. Like, this is now, like, to a, a more myopic level where individual restaurants, blogs, any, anything like that, if you don't have, like, the good visuals that go along with your food, it's, like, it's at a detriment to your business. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, yeah, like, every, like, whenever you post a picture of, like, a dish on Instagram, everyone's like, oh, my God, I want that. Like, and that's this form of advertising that, like, other people are often doing for you at a restaurant. Like, you know, like, your customers are taking pictures of your food, and then everyone's like, oh my god, where'd you get that, you know? It's like a blessing and a curse, right, though? Because it's like a type of marketing that you, that can go viral, and that you don't have to pay for, but it's also something that you can't control. And there's also so much competition. Like, you shared an Instagram with me that uh, the camera eats first. Mm -hmm. And I think about this a lot where 
I remember when I first got Instagram or just when people started getting social media in general or Twitter, so many people would constantly be writing or taking pictures about their food. And like now I think that it's kind of morphed into like people understand it's a, it's ridiculous to do, but it's like everybody's still so compelled to take all of these like dumb, or maybe they're not dumb. Sometimes they're nice photos of their food, but like it's just eat it. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I get, I mean, I've been getting flack when I, because like, I'm taking pictures of my burgers that I'm eating for my website, and I take like 50 pictures of the burger <laughs> from like 80 different angles, and all of my friends are like, just eat it, it's getting cold. And I'm like, I know, but I have to, this is important. Like, well, I have, but, like, <laughs> but it's important for me on my website that I have like these pictures of these things. Sure. And like, Real talk, almost I've always seen the picture of your burgers first on Instagram, and that's how I know that you have a new blog post up. Yeah. Because, like, the the thing about Instagram compared to other social media sites, and this is definitely impactful to restaurants, Mm -hmm. is social, like, Facebook, if you have a page, if you don't promote your post, people don't see it. And Twitter, you're dealing with such a flood of competition, Mm -hmm. but Instagram is still like uh, the continuity is still chronological you don't have to pay for your content to be like to be guaranteed to be seen Mm -hmm. so it's so important to have that photo otherwise like people will not know of your existence like people won't know that something's new before we started recording i actually because i am like a fan of yours on facebook and then i like bothered before we started recording like let me go to their page to see if like anything's new and i missed from your facebook page like six of your posts Oh, really? Yeah. But then I recognized them from Instagram. I was like, oh, well, I knew that these existed because I saw them on Instagram. That's kind of why I've, I mean, I've kind of resurrected my Twitter presence to some degree just because I feel like I have to be flooding all of the things. And like, I don't know, I've got my first like Tumblr, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm not really, I still don't really understand, but I'm, I'm there. Um, (laughs) you know posting pictures and links to to my website but it's just this idea that i need to be on all of the things to promote my website i want to talk a little bit more about the idea of like restaurants like using instagram or making sure that they have high quality pictures but then also how it's become so important for like the average cook the average eater the average person anybody essentially who has an instagram account uh, we talked about offline, like people who have taken it into like more of an art form and like have made like parody accounts of people who always take pictures of their food. Like you were talking about one particular one where like it's like all like garbage food, like but made like really pretty. Oh, yeah, uh, there's this Instagram account called Chef Jacques Lemaire where he takes total junk food and makes it look like these like beautiful fine dining stuff and he he's using like all of these like weird techniques to like kool-aid spheres and it's a it's a really funny because like you you look at the picture and it's this like gorgeous looking dish and then you read the description where he's like he's like i like ground up cheetos and like sprinkled them around (laughs) the edge of the you know like i feel like that does like two things it it kind of creates this like duality of one does it highlight how easily manipulated people are with like 
visuals. Okay. All of the all of this food on like Chef. I I'm sure his name is not Chef Jacques Lamerde. <laughs> like, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we are calling him Chef whatever is ridiculous. I I just think like when I was looking at that, I remember when you first sent it before I realized it. Before I bothered to read, which is not a strong point of internet culture these days, I just thought it was like legitimate food. And I was like, oh, this is just more food porn. Hashtag food Uh porn. And then when I started like, actually, I'm like, why did he send this to me? And started Uh diving into it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like sitting here like salivating over like shit that I can go get at the corner store. (laughs) And it's like two ideas. Like one should we be taking this everyday food and, and giving it the pizzazz it deserves? Or are uh, we just chumps who like... Well, I mean, it's kind of that that thing where, you know, you post this like beautiful picture of food, but you don't know how good it is. Like, you know? And like, that's kind of a conflict to me as a person who tries to make like legitimately tasty food. But then, you know, it also has to look good and then people want it. But you can't prove that something tastes good with a photo. Like, social media is still an incredibly deceptive place. And Mm -hmm. like that guy, we started talking about the fat Jew guy because he was able to manipulate a bunch of people into thinking that he was a much more credible comedian, a much more credible source. And that's what I feel like a lot of times with these, like, really artful pictures of food, and especially with this, like, Jack LaMerde Mm -hmm. guy. God, what... Let's just call him Jackie. Chef Jackie. Okay. No. Chef Jack. <laughs> Chef, Chef Jack. Jacques. Chef Jacques. You, there's these moments where we can be deceived into to thinking that someone is an authority on these subjects because mm-hmm. they're able to manipulate a, an app and make something yeah. look really good. I think that there's this idea that the images that we see, to your point, like supersede what we actually taste or what we experience. And we talked about this a little bit offline, the idea that food now has to be more visually compelling than it does in terms of like how it tastes or if it's sustainable, if it's fair trade, if it like all of that can go out of the window if you can like crush up Cheetos in the proper way and you know, lay them ever so gently next to an onion, you know, an onion ring. I think that you recently wrote about this on your blog. I think that this is how the, the viral Black Whopper uh, uh-huh. came into existence. You know a little bit more about the Black Whopper's history, so I, I feel like you should educate sure. <laughs> our listeners. <laughs> the like, Black well, Whopper also, unless you know that it's, it's visually a Whopper bun that is pitch black, sounds like just a burnt Whopper. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's really funny looking, but, like, Burger King Japan made a Whopper where they used, they made, like, a, like, squid ink ketchup, and they dyed the buns using, like, I think charred bamboo, and they and they dyed the cheese, like, the, like, processed American cheese on it with, like, uh, charred bamboo also. And it's just this, like, burger that's, like, super... Goth? It's, it's it's just like it's really scary looking like i mean because it's got it's like not just the bun is black in japan it like the cheese is black and like there's a black sauce on it and you know it like kind of blew up on like social media last year where people were just like this is a freaky looking whopper check this thing out yeah aren't japanese people like weird and then 
And then Burger King in America responded to this by being like, let's make an American version. And like here they just like dyed the bun using like standard food dye. (laughs) They baked a little bit of A1 sauce into it. Um, And then they use A1 sauce on the thing. But otherwise it's just like a standard Whopper. Like they didn't use any of the like weird like Japanese ingredients to make it black. But um it was sort of this thing where, like, they saw, like, the impact that, like, social media had on people increasing that visibility of the, like, sure, weird like, international food. And then <laughs> and then tried to, like, mimic the, its success here, mm-hmm. which is something that the internet has impacted, like, every industry, every walk of life, is that we now live in, like, a much more global society. America can't have anything that, or can't go without anything that someone else has. Uh I mean, so obviously we needed to get the black Whopper. I think it shows two things. Like, one, what you mentioned is, like, the social media impact that, like, a black Whopper has that a regular regular Whopper does not. That, like, something visually had to change about it to become compelling to have people go, go eat it. I mean... We all, at least to me, and I don't know if I'm stepping out of turn, Burger King is like the poor man's fast food. I mean, like in Uh tears, I have to be pretty drunk to be like, all right, let's go to Burger King. Like, I have to like, it would be hard pressed for me to drive past a McDonald's, Mm Chick-fil-A, Wendy's, KFC. I mean, I have to go, like all of those things can't exist first before I would decide to go to Burger King. However, the Black Whopper tempted me. I don't even like Whoppers. And uh-huh. I was like, yeah, but this is super weird. Everybody on social media is saying it turns your poop green. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. But did it turn your poop green? It did. <laughs> like, so when I was a kid, I, and I think most kids did this, where you mixed all of your juices together because uh-huh. you wanted to make like a super juice or like a super yeah. soda. So I had the great idea of not only mixing all the juices together, but then adding blue food coloring to it. Cause I, and I called it a uh, blue wave. This was like this new amazing drink that I made <laughs> and I made it with a friend and we put like, you know, as a child, you don't have a concept of like how much food dye needs to go into something to change its properties. Uh-huh. So I thought like half the tube of food dye was like the necessary amount for blue wave, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, an enormous amount of food dye. Yes, it is. When I, I was like maybe eight when I did this, when I pooped, yeah. it was like, completely blue like (laughs) like like iphone message blue like it was so blue and i couldn't like i was like shocked you know like this happened i had no idea how it happened because my eight-year-old mind could not wrap wrap itself around that concept and then i wanted to ask my friend about it but obviously at eight you're not going to openly discuss poop because that would be embarrassing so I remember slightly being like, was your pee blue? You know, which that would not have happened. Pee was normal color. And then my friend confirming that her pee was also blue. But what we were really talking about is... Uh-huh. And so... so the blue poop. <laughs> what, what I loved about the Black Whopper is, again, like it superseded the utilitarian function of food and went from, whoa, weird thing associated with Halloween... And then, like, the common conversation about, like, green poop. Yeah. Was it bright green or was it just, like, a dull green? It was, <laughs> it was like, a... <laughs> a minty like a green? forest green? <laughs> no way. It was, like, that, like, lush? It was, lush? I mean... <laughs> but it was still, it was still poo. 
so I mean, you know, there's the there's the brown standard poo color, but like you know, it, like they just had like this incredible amount of dye in the bun that they, <laughs> that, and you know, I mean, there isn't like a like black dye. No, you so have to you have so to mix just, dye. Just doing like a lot of like probably green and blue to just give it just as dark as you can go. Sure. Without using like charred bamboo or whatever. <laughs> and what. I like also surfaced after like, and I feel like it was to compete with like the social media presence of the black Whopper was like, Mm -hmm. then like McDonald's showed like they had a gray cheeseburger in China. And then like uh, another like pastry company showed like this weird pastry that, you know, when you squeeze it, it would poop and throw up, which I was like, that sounds super (laughs) delicious. That's what I want to eat today. But then, but aside from that, we're seeing like a lot of manifestations where the physical presence of food online is superseding like what we're supposed to be doing with it, which is eating it. And the other major thing that happened recently was the rainbow Doritos that kind of highlight this to me and like along the same lines as the Black Whopper, where I feel like the Black Whopper was very much like we're trying to sell more Whoppers at Halloween. Uh And we saw that there was internet success over in Japan in you know, crazy town USA, or I guess crazy town Japan. Um, (laughs) But then there was like a whole ad campaign where they dyed Doritos rainbow colors in support. I don't like, I guess, you know, I I guess it was in support of gay marriage or pride or something, but it came, the the Doritos themselves came out after the SCOTUS decision and after pride, but they got such flack from like major like politicians like Mike Huckabee like denounced Doritos like if you went on Twitter like the Twitter world was like a fire about the idea that there was like pro-gay Doritos there was gay Ritos. Like, they hated it. I mean, was it... Were they explicitly or even implicitly, like, in support of, like, gay rights? So when I first saw... Or was it just happened to be that, like, these rainbow Doritos came out at the same time? So I, I think that it might have, like, overtly... Or, um, not overtly, was, like, kind of piggybacking off of the success. Or not success... Well, it is a success that there was gay marriage passed. Um, But I think that it it was probably a little bit of both, right? Like there is a pro-gay momentum that's happening within our country. There's a new, there's a ton of new markets that are really in support or like people who want to identify as being supportive of this community. Let's dye some Doritos. At the very end, you've got some really colorful, fun Doritos that would look great at a kid's unicorn birthday party. Win-win. And I think that, People decided to take a political stance and to go back to kind of the beginning of this conversation where I think that because of social media, food is surpassing like what it means in our lives. Like at first, like food was to be sustainable, right? Like we had to eat to live. Then once we realized that like, hey, we're all have enough food, we're thriving, like let's <laughs> let's make food now be delicious yeah. you know especially with the advent of like refrigeration and like all these other things i mean like i think in the first step of humanity like going too far i always think is is fragois like oh yeah <laughs> well, because like it, there's no reason except for like sheer human domination that that like process <laughs> needs to exist Right, where you like force feed a goose until it dies so you can eat its liver. Like that's only you have too much time on your hands to figure that out. Right? <laughs> like if anybody wants to say like is humanity like thriving or dying? 
just go to Frogwall. <laughs> like, I mean, have you, have you had foie gras? Uh, I haven't, and I'm not morally against okay. it. Uh, and I, I hear it's delicious. I'm more turned off at the idea of eating like a diseased liver than I am about like the force feeding of the frogois. Uh-huh. Uh, it does seem like inhumane to be inhumane, but like, again, I eat at McDonald's on the reg, so I'm not going to like, <laughs> I'm not going to knock at least like somebody's paying top dollar for that inhumanity. <laughs> it's really, it, it is really good. Um, just to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> and it, it honestly just tastes like pure, just fatty decadence and deliciousness <laughs> like and i mean i did read an article recently about like ethical foie gras where like they like, no, I like don't mean they, they, they try they try to like harvest it at these times when the geese are like naturally like, storing up for winter or whatever and like at a time when they are like kind of somewhat naturally gorging themselves sure. but like it's like like the outcome like the kind of the conclusion of this article was that like it just tastes so much better when you're like putting a funnel <laughs> in a goose's mouth like so with that said along the lines of like human progression and food like, then we then we move into like a first world country situation like america where like food is at such an abundance that we've uh-huh. transformed it in so many different ways that it now even supersedes like if it has to taste good it has to look good so it can yeah. represent us in like weird ways and now we've taken it to a whole new level doritos has done it again first with the taco now uh-huh. with the rainbow doritos and like our food can even be overt political statements previously like food is incredibly political overpopulation yeah. and us dying of starvation is a very major topic that people should care about mm-hmm. and like food deserts you know in urban areas where you can't get healthy food and there's like a yeah. lot of ways that like regular ass food is important to talk about but the, I think it's interesting that, and I feel that this is the impact of the internet where it had, the reason that you're seeing these like radical changes of like the Black Whopper and Rainbow Doritos is because people will take pictures of them. <laughs> I think that if like you didn't have the accessibility of the image and like, I'm interested in knowing your thoughts, if you didn't have the accessibility of the image, I don't think that there would be this focus on food preparation, like looking very professional and nice was because of like the experience of paying so much money in a restaurant, right? But yeah. now it's like like every restaurant has to worry about how their plate's going to come out. Like mm-hmm. Denny's can't just throw shit on the plate. Well, it's, uh, one thing that I find really interesting like is the In-N-Out Burger Instagram account. They have these they have these like <laughs> Why have really, I not signed up for this? Yeah. No, like they have these like over-stylized looking burgers on it that look really like boring and sterile, but like anytime anyone else posts a picture of the like in and out burger, I'm like, that's like like the gross, like goopy <laughs> cheese and like the like the bun that's like concaved a little bit. Yeah, like, like and like the like whatever that I I honestly haven't had in and out burger in my life. Um but like Oh, I have. The, yeah, like the, <laughs> is it the, the animal sauce, I think. I don't know. Or like I'm whatever. Like, like they've purist. got this kind of I'm sauce like that's like only kind of and delicious looking. But like, and I, but like whenever I see those pictures, I'm like, that's what I want to eat. Not this over sterile, like food stylized pictures that In-N-Out is like actually producing. Well, and I also love, um, like, it's, it's cool to know that like, w- you've noticed it on in and out there's been like a couple accounts that will show like a McDonald's advertising, like what McDonald's shows and then like somebody on Instagram, like what I got, you know, like the visual difference between like what a Whopper looks uh-huh. like and like the, or excuse me, what a Big Mac looks yeah. like in the commercial. 
And then, like, when you actually receive a Big Mac mm-hmm. in life, like, can you imagine being an alien that, like, plops down on Earth? You, like, sign up for Instagram, look at, like, wow, this McDonald's place looks so decadent and so artfully crafted. And then, like, you go and get your Big Mac for the first time and you're like, what happened here? It's so much smaller and grayer. <laughs> like, I don't, like, this, like, leads me to... Just in general, we, you run a burger blog, so we've kind of focused a lot on, like, fast food, and and um, I think that, like, social media, I don't know how much, actually, it, it, impact, it, it impacts, like, Michelin-rated, like, restaurants, like, really high-quality places, but I know that it's had, like, such a, and we've talked about it, it had such a significant impact on places like Arby's and and other fast food chains. But I feel like what I see online more often, and I don't know if it's because of my age or if my friends are trashy or what, but like almost everything is about the gratuitousness that like junk food can like develop in. And you brought back to my mind, this is why you're fat, which has been like a pretty Mm -hmm. long ongoing blog that highlights like how I just keep using the word gratuitous, gluttonous, maximizing our culture can get with food products. And I remember the first time I was introduced to this is this is why you're fat was like the the crossing of the double down the KFC I'm using air quotes but it's a podcast chicken sandwich where it, there was no <laughs> bread it was just two pieces of fried chicken with cheese and, chicken. and bacon in the middle I never personally ate one I watched my friend uh-huh. Harold who was on a guest on this podcast before eat one and like he was sweating like halfway through it it seemed like the most delicious idea I've ever oh, yeah. heard of but then seeing it in reality was like the scariest thing that had happened. Like I, I really thought he was gonna have a heart attack. Like I was like, this is gonna happen. My mom was ordering the double down and then just like making it into two meals. She's like, this is amazing. They're charging like, <laughs> they're charging one price for two pieces of chicken. What idiots? Um, you showed me that like you brought back up. This is why you're fat. And I want to talk a little bit about like the internet's impact on our diets and like how we're combining all of these like weird looking foods or like fatty looking foods into it's gone beyond like having to sustain ourselves it's about i don't know if it's about comfort if it's about feeling full i don't know the funny thing that i think about uh this is why you're fat is that when i feel like when i was looking at it like 10 years ago it was like wow look at these like ridiculous things that people have made but i feel like now it's all things that you can get yeah i noticed that too like originally it was like it was like wow someone wrapped bacon around a thing and now like bacon wrapped things are everywhere like someone wrapped bacon around like a hot dog i listened to recently npr has this podcast called planet money and Mm -hmm. they usually dissect different places in the economy and like how they thrive or fail and they did one particularly on like fast food creations and I feel like you see a lot more fast food uh, places trying something like the double down or like crazy experiments like food things and I think it's directly because of the internet because they've seen people like on uh, this is why you're fat or other sites like it who created what you're saying, these crazy food concoctions saw their virility, saw that they went viral and people became like obsessed with this idea. And now they're trying to profit off of it. I can't believe how many places you can get bacon on a donut now. Like it's a pretty yeah. common occurrence and like, or, or chocolate covered bacon or, you know, like now most burgers come with 
onion rings on top of them and like a pork chop. And like, I feel like this is because of the introduction of technology. It's like now that we, and specifically in, in America, we don't need food just to sustain ourselves. It's a luxury. I feel like a lot of like social media sites and we talked a little bit offline about like Buzzfeed's role in this like idea that the more ludicrous and bad for you and obnoxiously big and decadent, like the better it must be, or at least it, it will like photograph really funny. I guess like from a lot of these conversations, I feel like the food industry or at least people who are eating food are not actually benefiting as much from the internet's impact on food culture. Or maybe I'm maybe that's just like an American perception that I'm having, but I think it's an idea that that's kind of where food culture is going. I remember I talked to someone recently about like just like the fact that like so like restaurant scene is like blowing up in Minneapolis right now. Sure. But like they can't get like most of these places don't have like very good vegetarian selection. And it's sort of because like people are people are kind of feeling unrestricted and and I think that's I mean I think that's true of like restaurants and with like home chefs like people you know like people who don't work in the industry who are just like cooking for themselves presently have a lot more access to not just like weird ingredients but like expensive like cooking equipment you know like and like and they have they're getting that knowledge from the internet too but to like to bring that back I think that and it isn't just like finer dining that like you know you'd get at a restaurant but it's like at the same time I feel like people are just more into decadent foods of all levels like sure. like there's people who, who are like really into foie gras but then they also really want like three extra slices of cheese on their burger and they want like <laughs> extra sauce they're like I eat decadently no matter where I eat like and I, I mean I don't know I don't think it's just that, but, you know, it's, like, when... It's it's the, the idea that, like, if I'm eating, like, a shitty burger, I'm going to make it as gross as possible. Like, I'm going to put, like, nacho cheese and <laughs> onion rings and bacon and everything on this burger. Well, I think that, to to your point of the, unre- the idea of unrestricted, and that's kind of, like, I think with the introduction of the internet that most people who have the privilege and the ability to not only be able to be online, but have income to where they can do whatever they want. Like that's what the internet mm-hmm. essentially has done for everyone. It is unrestricted information. It is unrestricted yeah. communication, accessibility. And here, like food is something that we've had a first, like very specific relationship with you eat to live. And then mm-hmm. as like the idea of like money and feudalism and then capitalism, and then like what you eat and how you eat it represents like your wealth, your status, your success. Like you think like everybody, I've never had caviar, but you know, ca- everybody knows caviar is expensive. Because, like, Uh there's always some movie with some ritzy person eating caviar and they talk about it like this. And and (laughs) because, like, everybody's so much more visible, like, all these communities are more visible to one another. Maybe there's there's this surgence of people creating these, like, decadent or overwhelming experiences with, like quote-unquote junk food is because like it's like almost like a retort to like feeling and looking and acting successful but still not actually Mm -hmm. being a part of that class 
And then like people who are of that class, they get to play in whatever field they want anyway. So if you're right, like if they're going to get a Whopper, why isn't it black and weird and like something of a story? (laughs) Just going back to the whole Rainbow Doritos thing. It's like if you can't, if food can't do more than just feed you, it's almost like it's not good enough. You're in this industry and like not only are you in it, but like you have like a sense of, you have this sense of authority because like you, you understand food preparation, food cost, like you start this blog to like be more informative but like now there is like a a ton of competition on the idea of who can be an authority on what's good and i i feel like two ways about this when it comes to like anything where an authority used to dictate like a collective societal opinion on something that the internet has allowed a space for like many more voices. I think about, have you ever uh, looked at any of Aunt Fee's videos? She's a black woman who essentially was trying to start a YouTube cooking show. And she cooks like with like jars of Crisco and she makes like things that are Uh so insanely bad for you, but they're probably delicious, like soul food. She got like a lot, like a a lot of viral success. She's been on the Steve Harvey show. She's super curt. She like curses all the time and she's hilarious. You should follow her on Facebook or um, YouTube Uh or YouTube channel. However, like even though she thinks of herself as a, as a chef, like, I'm watching her because of like the spectacle that is Aunt Fee, right? Yeah. But it changed like her success as a as a chef, and I, using air quotes again for those at home, rivals like like for example a ton like a million people know who Aunt Fee is who probably can't cook anything of like the quality that somebody would say is like from a five-star restaurant. And then there's somebody who's working at a five-star restaurant who might be making this amazing food, but because they don't have any kind of social media presence, Mm -hmm. they're not the authority on fried chicken. Like, and and fried chicken is something that Aunt Fee often cooks and has comments on. And it was interesting. They had her, she had this like viral success. They have her on the Steve Harvey show. And she was like working with all of these like people trying to teach them how to cook. And she very much understands like how to be like a home cook. But it's uh-huh. interesting to think that like because of how many people follow her, she is now an authority on food. As somebody who's now creating content, trying to be an authority on like a particular food burgers, uh-huh. like this challenges and the idea of, of things like Yelp and Urban Spoon. And is it better that we have more people commenting on food or is this something that we need to somehow collectively understand like with the internet, how to deem somebody an authority. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think I started this blog and I was kind of like, like I did go through a weird phase where I was kind of like, why am I doing this? Who am I? Why do I get to do this? Like, why would anyone bother reading this? Um, And that does kind of remain a question. It's just like, you know, who, you know, like, why do I know better than anyone else besides the fact that you know i'm trying to just eat a bunch of burgers like (laughs) you know like the idea that i have eaten a lot and that i do think about it like that like i didn't you know attend some sort of like burger college um (laughs) there is a mcdonald's university (laughs) (laughs) it's for those store managers um i always thought that the name Hamburger University was just the coolest thing I've ever heard of. But, um, <laughs> oh my god, like, we yeah, need to make it's like man- It's just management training, and I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's so boring. Um, I mean, other than the fact, I mean, I do cook for a living. I don't presently make burgers at my restaurant, but 
I have made burgers, and I've eaten a lot of burgers, and I've read a lot about burgers. But I mean, I think to some degree, just the fact that I'm doing this, the fact that I'm trying to like collect information and that I'm trying to present information somewhat makes me an authority. I don't like calling myself an authority on this. Like, it's, I'm well, still it's, kind of comfortable with that idea. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think that like how much the internet has manipulated the idea of authority. And mm-hmm. this is actually the first recording that I have questioned the complete positive impact that the internet has had on any type of subject that we've talked about. Normally, like I'm unabashedly like, yes, the internet makes it better. Like every yeah. internet makes everything better. And the more that we've talked about this, I think it's interesting in terms of food, how, how far the internet can push people away from remembering the core functionality of what food's supposed to do, which is like sustain mm-hmm. us as humans. Yeah. And it's because like almost every other sense can be um, engaged online except for taste and touch mm-hmm. and smell, you know, but like even touch, I think because we're so familiar with that sensation that like there's things online that can embody that, but like there's no substitution for taste and smell. Like Mm -hmm. just nothing. So we're relying on what does food like visually mean for us Mm -hmm. as people. And I don't know if it's like a good thing to separate out how it tastes and smells. Right. And I don't know if it's, I think it's a a challenging thing. And I think that we should just like start talking about Yelp at this point of like, Uh it's like crowdsourcing information has done like wonders for so many things like news has been completely changed because of like the 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 amount of voice that can be can be represented. Well, I've talked about the impact that the Twitter has had on situations like Ferguson or earthquakes or anything like because you get so many different perspectives, but food is still tied to like monetary like you have to it's like still such a transactional thing. Like you have to be able to buy it to experience it. So everybody who is like writing Yelp reviews, uh-huh. if they physically have gone to the place, have been Uh able to afford to do that. But does that mean because you have the money to go have the experience? Does that mean that you get to be the the person that decides the validity of Yelp? And you work in the service industry, so I feel like I would you need to give your perspective on like how Yelp has like impacted your life. It has and it hasn't. It's this thing where, you know, like, my boss, the, the restaurant owners, they're like, Yelp matters and it doesn't. Like, we don't want it to matter, but it does. And I've definitely heard of stories of people being called out, like, by name on Yelp. Um, I haven't heard of anyone getting fired, but I've definitely heard of people being, like, chewed out and by the bosses by being like... yeah. This person had a bad experience and said that it was because of you. And didn't you say that your bosses like recently sent you the like South Park yeah, Yelp episode? They, they sent out like basically to the whole staff, being like, "Haha, Yelp is stupid." And <laughs> and it's because you do have this difficult relationship because you said you didn't see the South Park episode, right? No, I haven't seen it. But it's like you know, like Cartman goes to a restaurant and he's like, "Hi, so you're aware that I'm a reviewer on the website Yelp." And, like, he calls himself a reviewer. Or, no, he says, like, I'm a food critic on, <laughs> on Yelp. But, like, not, not I'm a Yelp user. Not even, like, identifying as that. And then, like, expecting, like, free shit. Because, like, he's a, 
quote-unquote food critic on Yelp. And, like, these restaurants are, like, initially, like, bending over backwards for him. You know, oh, like, let's give him, like, free desserts and let's give him, like, free nachos and, like, whatever we have to do to, like, make sure that our Yelp rating is high. But the fact is that Cartman is just a dude who signed up for an account on this website and went out to eat and then goes and talks about it. That's where I think that, you know, normally a lot of art critics talk about like the negative impact that art has had on critique because like essentially any untrained anybody can Mm -hmm. make comments about art and they be viewed as like, legitimate that that has happened to the restaurant industry like way more like i feel like the food critic in my mind is like a travel agent like does this job even exist or have any meaning because people are so reliant on services like yelp or urban spoon i like in full disclosure used to use yelp a lot and did it to the point where when i was moving to minneapolis i was like i'm in grad school i'm broke i want free things I'm going to start writing crazy amounts of Yelp reviews so I become an elite Yelper. And you and you do. You get invited to like restaurant openings and you get to like oh, yeah. get like open bars at places and there's all of these things to where like businesses want you as an elite Yelper to write a review about them. I know nothing about food. I'm just an <laughs> articulate writer. And I eventually stopped doing it once I got more money in my life because I was like, this is so disingenuous. I'm more interested in the decor of the restaurant and writing about that than I am about the quality of what I'm eating. And I'm like, this is such an unfair representation. And in San Francisco, like the, it's, it's so tech-oriented that like everybody like lives and dies by like, oh, well, let's look up a restaurant on Yelp. And... I actually like got aggravated because Yelp dictates where crowds go of strangers. Like if somebody's new to a city, they look at Yelp and then everywhere that Yelp suggests is like so busy. But I'm like, does this actually, just because like a bunch of people had their opinion of this, does it mean the place is good? I have no idea because I definitely gave, what was it, the malt shop in Minneapolis? Uh-huh. I think I gave them like a five star review, but because I was super into like the server, like twisting up the straws while he came to our table, like oh, the yeah? burgers, <laughs> just whatever. Like, <laughs> During my time in Minneapolis, I will say that there wasn't many meals that I was like, oh my God, this is an amazing meal. But mm-hmm. Minneapolis as a city, like just is kills the burger. It's so good. Burgers in Minneapolis or the Midwest (laughs) are just like so much better than everywhere else. But I remember writing a Yelp review for the Juicy Lucy at Matt's. Uh-huh. And Matt's is like a dining experience is like a garbage hole. Like <laughs> you wait in a Total line. Yeah, it's it's like super filthy. The service is shitty normally because yep. there's one server for the whole place. The fries are just whatevs, but that burger is unbelievable. Like yeah. it's so delicious. <laughs> Cooked on the small like World War II surplus grill that they yep. make it on. So my five-star review if like I went there based off of like, just like, this is a great place to go. I don't indicate if it's a good place for families, if it's a good place, like if it's really busy, your burger might not even be that good. Like uh-huh. It's so subjective and we rely so heavily on it as like users. Yeah, I read a review recently of a place where like the guy starts out his review, like it was like a pretty negative review of like like this uh, steakhouse. But the guy starts out the review being like, I, as a elite, 
Yelper. I have a lot of authority on, like, he says that. He identifies as, like, I'm an elite user of this, so I get to be an authority. But, like, you know, as you said, don't need any knowledge you just need to write enough reviews there's no like jurying of the who gets to be an elite it's yeah right i don't i don't know i mean like from my understanding there is like community leaders in every city and if you get reviews that get a lot of interaction like upvotes or then you they'll start to qualify you as it's essentially like if your posts are getting a lot of traffic then you are considered elite. Granted, I got a lot of traffic because I wrote a haiku about a pizza place. Uh-huh. Again, not a very informative piece of <laughs> food critique. Just a well-written haiku about how much I love pizza. <laughs> so it's not, it's like incredibly subjective. Yeah. And ultimately the community leaders are just looking for people who can generate more people that will have interest in the site. And if you can be entertaining rather than thoughtful or useful then that works too uh-huh. <laughs> so and the other thing yelp has been criticized a lot for this recently is you can create a review for somewhere with never stepping into the establishment yeah and again this is where i love that there's tools and i love that there's technology that allows people to have a voice because like i also don't think that like years of education should be the only thing that makes you an authority either like mm-hmm. like you were saying you're conflicted about the idea of calling yourself an authority on burgers because like it, that's like you have like the pedigree in terms of like you understand food preparation and you're part of that mm-hmm. industry and you've eaten a fuck ton of burgers which mm-hmm. is all qualifications but you understand that food is subjective and like what makes your decision of a burger better than someone else's yeah but then on the flip side because the technology has taken people out of the actual experience and you you do this within an app or do it online you can manipulate people's perception without ever experiencing the restaurant the service the food well it was like i shared with you the link of the restaurant that was giving discounts for one star reviews it was kind of like two to combat Yelp. They were just sort of shooting for a really low rating on Yelp by offering a discount if some like to people who wrote one-star reviews of their restaurant. So they were trying to get people to give one-star reviews or I think it's sort of to combat this reliance on like high Yelp reviews. Yelp has gotten some criticism also for trying to get restaurants or other businesses to sign up with them and then I don't I mean I don't know exactly how I haven't looked into the specifics of it but like they they've been accused of incentivizing businesses to get accounts with them, and they get somewhat of more control over how their reviews appear so I, it looks like what this person did in San Francisco is essentially try to take Yelp out of the equation to their restaurant <laughs> well, I mean they ended up drumming up a lot of publicity for offering discounts for one star reviews huh? but like essentially what Yelp is is a social media site and uh-huh. that people's participation on it and interest in it isn't solely for the fact of like trying to find quality food or like great restaurants it's also Uh to interact with people and get notoriety and like feel like like you said like how Cartman said like I'm a food critic or like the other person starting their review of like an elite person is like this idea of like generating a status for themselves that they couldn't otherwise without the platform I mean essentially you're still asking people to participate I don't know it doesn't seem like a sustainable business model then like (laughs) they they actually I think they got in trouble with Yelp for like Yelp was like this goes against our like community guidelines about like giving incentives 
for reviews. Yeah, I I think that as a tool, because like it's still so highly malleable and what people can do with it in terms of like trolling and creating disingenuine content, we're used to it being like users are used to it being part of their like city or food exploration because we think that like the source content is reliable. But in reality, there's still so many X factors with like not just like exploring or taking into account what an actual food critic would say about a place and like relying on the possibly the other motives that people are creating these reviews on you know i think it's it's still be like is like really problematic i will say that one thing that the internet has done incredibly well in terms of creating more visibility is in the service industry in terms of like pay inequality, specifically like fast food restaurants. It's now become a conversation about minimum wage, which has such like an economic impact. I don't think that those conversations would exist without the internet. They've existed before, but at least not with the same volume. Yeah, but I think it's something that's presently in the news quite a bit. And and I think it's something that people are talking about. I remember you posted like a while back, like you were somebody who was an advocate of increasing the minimum wage for yeah. fast food workers. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, there's a restaurant in Minneapolis, uh, a pizza chain, local pizza chain called Punch Pizza, who raised their minimum wage, I think, to 12 bucks. And then Obama brought the owner to the State of the Union address. Be like, and this is the owner of Punch Pizza who's raising the <laughs> minimum wage for... Like, and it's sort of this idea that, like, a lot of people are worried about, you know, raising the minimum wage and how that will affect the bottom line of their business. And if more people have more money, more people are spending more money, you know, then, like, these businesses are basically getting going to be getting that money back. Yeah, for back. sure. It's like a cyclical situation. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, like, you can't sell more if people can't afford to purchase more. Yeah. And the idea, I think that like what the internet has done for this particular issue, and I also saw like a different like a viral video from a conference that was held at the White House in terms of fast food workers who were talking about how this was like a, a career choice and that this is a this is a service that all of us have come to know and want like nobody wants all of a sudden there to be no drive through at McDonald's or any of these other places or like your cashier at Starbucks to go away so there needs to be some type of sustainability and I feel like that's like the everybody should drink every time I say the word sustainability on the podcast today <laughs> like these people need to be able to fund their lives if they are such an important part of our existence and I thought about this and like it becomes easy to dismiss the prices of everything will go up if we increase minimum wage and people won't pay the prices. But I feel that the visibility that the internet provides to all of these different stories and these issues of um, somebody's quality of life, and you get to put faces and communities and like unions of people together that are all in this experience, it becomes a lot more easy for the general public to legitimize why their coffee is now 50 cents more because you understand that the impact that it has on people. And I feel that the internet creates that transparency. I feel like it's the reason we see a lot of expedited conversations about a lot of different social issues. And 
somebody could be dismissive about it and say like, oh, well, this is just fast food or this is just a luxury item uh, like the service industry. But ultimately, like this is how we sustain ourselves in a first world country. It's through the work of people in the fast food industry, in the service industry. If we don't increase their quality of life and we don't make it easy for them to even maintain these jobs like we will feel this collectively in one way or the other it's either we're going to pay for it up front or we're going to really pay for it in the end and i think that business owners too are able to see that like you know whenever there's like a story or something about oh like if we raise minimum wage we're going to have to increase prices i feel like most of the comments on that are going to be like i feel like when i read it like most of the comments are Stuff like, I'm 100% willing to pay more if, like, the people who are, like, making my food are, like, supported and, sure. you know, have sustainability with their jobs. And We talked about this earlier, that food is such a political issue, is that you don't increase the quality of life and you don't increase the minimum wage in the service industry. Mm-hmm. These people will then tax different systems that will cost us some way or the other. Like, if they don't have health care through their employer, then they're going to need to have government-assisted health care. Yeah. Or they're going to get medical care and then not be able to pay for it and then go into drastic debt. No matter what, there's some issue that this will impact. Rather Mm -hmm. than giving people the tools to be able to take care of themselves, they are going to have to rely on some other type of social system. Every time I hear the argument of like, well, you choose to work in fast food or you choose to be a server, you choose to, you choose this lifestyle. First of all, it's, everybody knows it's incredibly naive to say that somebody chooses a life of poverty. Most people are born into that situation. Mm -hmm. It's also unfair for people to assume that you can't have a choice of wanting this type of lifestyle. Like, it's like saying that the job is not legitimate and doesn't deserve fair pay because of the remedial nature of it, which also seems incredibly flawed. It's just so complicated. And I feel that the, like you said, the more, the more stories that people can share and collective voice they can have, this is an area where like, okay, the collective voice of people on Yelp, who cares? But the collective voice of like, industry workers being able to say like the struggles that are happening on the east coast are happening in the midwest the south the west coast and that this problem of like pay inequality will literally impact the entire country if it's not solved that seems like a pretty good place to end on (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think that's a really good conversation we talked about a lot of crazy stuff yes we did and on that exciting note about pay inequality Thanks, Maddie, so much for talking to me today and, and sharing your food knowledge and talking about how the internet has impacted food. And just one more time, where can people find you online to like read your awesome burger blog? That's at burgerfetish.co. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Burger Fetish. And I have to do like one more shout out. It is a really funny blog. Besides being like incredibly informative about burgers that you can eat in the Twin Cities area and beyond as you expand, it's uh-huh. it's very well written. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter, at and the internet, and on the blog at leeandtheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash leeandtheinternet. Also, if you're a fan of the show, make sure to review us on iTunes and make it easier for others to find.